Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of DroneSec. Um, this is the podcast where we discuss and chat about all the security stuff in the world of drones. Um, I'm your host Mike Monick and really excited this time around to have Jacob Tews on board as your co-host. I'm from Melbourne here in Australia. Um, I work as a cybersecurity consultant or a penetration tester as most people know me from. Um, but I'm also the director here at DroneSec and you know I work with Fahim and Jacob to, to bring you guys all the latest and greatest in the world of drone security. So um, Jacob, you know, we've brought you on as the, the new co-host. Um, you were very much the a motivating, you know, pursuit to try and get this um, rebooted for, you know, very good reasons. Do you want to just give a bit of an introduction about yourself, um, what you do in the world of drone security and what you do outside of the world of drone security um, and, you know, what we're going to chat about? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Mike, and thanks for bringing me on to the team here at DroneSec. Um, the, my background is as an attorney, so um, I work here in Lincoln, Nebraska in the United States. I'm a solo attorney. Um, you can find that at nebraskadronelaw.com. That's sort of the uh, legal side of the house. I'm also a full-time student going back for an LLM, which is a Master of Laws um, in the U.S. system that sits on top of the JD, um, so it's sort of a specialization year. And my LLM is in space, cyber, and telecommunications law. And I started into that program in part because I was interested in drones and drone security. The, as I look at the industry and as a uh, young lawyer trying to uh, make my mark, I think that uh, drones are not going to get that much better as aircraft, but they're going to get a whole lot better as computers, and um, they're going to be able to talk to each other. So uh, I'm I'm focusing on those issues throughout this LLM. I'm excited to join the team here at DroneSec, uh, at least in this podcasting capacity, just because there's a lot of stuff going on and there aren't a ton of people talking about it, at least in this media. So I hope that we can bring some insights using your technical background and my legal background to try and help people make some rational decisions in how they do or don't want to defend their uh, their areas from drones using CUS technology. Mm. And that's probably a, a very good marriage because, you know, a hacker without any of the, the legal background is probably not a, a great perspective you want to have by itself. Yeah, and I think a lawyer who doesn't know what he's talking about isn't any good either. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll be able to bring people a good mix of things then. And, you know, you've uh, you've been called the, the flying lawyer. Is that correct? What, what kind of um, background do you have in that part? <laughs> yeah, that's my self-branding. Um, I obviously did not uh, go to school for marketing. We, uh, so, so I got my pilot's license a few years ago, and I am certified under Part 91. Uh, when Part 107 came out, um, I went and got my uh, certificate for that too, which is uh, a pretty easy step in the U.S. if you're already Part 91 certified. Uh, so I've got a, a small company that my brother and I ran for a little bit um, that was called Midwest Air Partners, where we uh, basically wanted to jump in on the front end of this drone mapping phenomenon and uh, be one of those first businesses to make it. And as I've actually gotten into more seriously looking at this industry um, from a, again, legal perspective, but also just as an interested uh, participant, potentially, I, uh, I continually get mocked by all the analysts who actually know what they're talking about, like Colin Snow and Mike Blades and all those guys um, <laughs> as being one of those wide-eyed entrepreneurs who thought that I was just going to jump in and make bank, even though I didn't know what I was doing. So 
Uh, yeah, that's that's the the flying part of the background. Um, I have an intense interest in aviation, but uh, that's sort of the hobby side. Um, and frankly, from a professional perspective, I'm hoping to um, move into the cyber world and be a um, cybersecurity, uh, data privacy, uh, data security attorney um, as I come out of this program. And so I think drones are, are one industry where I hope to apply those skills. Mm. And I think you'll find it'll it'll start insecting more with you know drones having the the onboard computers and, and needing things like you know holding customer data um, you know and what you're doing with that customer data are you sending you know stuff that you've captured on drone overseas does it affect certain laws there's you know there's a whole lot there that's that's probably hasn't been looked at or is, or is being looked at um, in flux now um, so I'm sure you'll have a lot to look into um, when you come out of that that program. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on the DJI ban. I don't think we're going to get to that today, but that would be a, a good follow-up. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't didn't name anyone just yet, but I, I'm sure it'll come to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was actually the talk of the town and in some of the recent um, conferences, of course, and, and a lot of companies actually being able to um, pinpoint their services based on that kind of outcome um, with that specific um, case. Right. So what are we doing here? What's this podcast going to be? Yeah, well, it's going to follow, I guess, the, the same um, original thought, which was there wasn't much information about drone security. Um, and, you know, we wanted to get the information out there and also just, you know, put a, a discussion point to it. Um, and, you know, when it originally started, um, my my idea of it was to interview um, people within the, the industry, people uh, on the field. Um, and it got to the point where it was hard to actually keep up with everyone's time zones. And so it kind of fell out. So Jacob uh, very wonderfully came and, and knocked on my door more than a, a couple of times um, to say that, you know, something like a, a weekly podcast compared to my, my idea of, a, say, a monthly or, or longer um, would be great for this industry. And, you know, personally, I'm, I was, you know, in love with the idea. So um, Jacob and I will be, you know, planning to do this on a, a weekly basis so you can expect weekly podcasts. Um, and when we do interview the guests that we have lined up, um, you can expect that to be, you know, sporadic. Um, so listeners can surely expect, you know, um, to be warned or notified when that's coming up, but that'll, there'll be a, a weekly um, podcast each week sitting for them, waiting for them. Yep, subscribe to the feed. And uh, shout out to the Defensive Security Podcast while we're at it. You guys are the inspiration for the format. Yeah, brilliant. And I guess what we can um, dive into is, is this week's news. So um, obviously we, we use a different a number of different feeds. Um, one of them is the, the Roundup um, that, you know, we'll link and, and list, but I, I've, I've used them quite heavily um, since we started DroneSec. Um, and Jacob, if you want to you head off the section of some of the, the news that we've seen over the past week or so. Sure. Um, I thought one of the most interesting direct developments was uh, OpenWorks Engineering, which is a company, I believe, out of the UK. Is that right? Um, I believe so. They have released some new details about their Skywall 300 turret-mounted uh, automatic counter-drone system. So by way of background, um, there are a number of different systems out there uh, that people can use um, to try to mitigate the threats posed by drones. And uh, one of those is to just deal with them kinetically in one way or another. So that would include shooting them with a shotgun. But if you don't want to do something that destructive, um, nets have been a uh, popular way for people to try to deal with that problem. Skywall previously had a system that was a shoulder-mounted, uh, looked sort of like a bazooka, um, and, and worked sort of like a bazooka except with a net. So it would 
be fired and uh, sort of home in on the on the drone, grab it and drop it to the ground. Their new system um, addresses some of the critiques that were leveled against that first system. Um, so those include a uh, these things are really hard to hit in the air. Um, so you, you're talking about a manually, you know, shoulder-fired system. That seems pretty tough. Um, you only got one shot, and then you got to, you know, reload, and you may not have time to, to take more than one shot. And probably the biggest one was that the range on these systems was just not going to be enough to seriously defend anything. So right. they took a hard look at that and uh, decided, well, what if we put this thing in a turret? Uh, and so the Skywall 300 now is a turret-mounted system that will use automated um, detection to, to track where the drone is in space and then uh, fire the net at that drone with dramatically increased air pressure, um, again, because it's sitting in a turret instead of on a shoulder-mounted uh, system. Mm. Um, and that's giving them an effective range, they claim, of up to 250 meters, uh, which is fairly substantial. So you're talking about a, a 500-meter dome then um, if, with, you know, 250-meter radius. And so uh, you're, you're talking about being able to defend something a little bit more seriously uh, with that system. And I think it's a, an interesting component of what will eventually become these uh, defense-in-depth systems where you'll have you know, a kinetic backstop, you might have um, a, a jamming mm. system out front, you might have a hacking system somewhere in the middle. Um, but yeah, this is a serious, you know, system. Um, it, could, it could potentially bring down either an inadvertent or a, an intentional bad actor. Yeah, and we're seeing a lot of that where they, you know, the defense and depth where they're not just relying on, you know, one um, mitigation. I've, you know, my experience with detection um, software is, well, sorry, detection systems is more based on they use, you know, a, a number of audio um, or, you know, video, RFID, um, you know, everything from software-defined radio to the actual detection of the drone through the, you know, the airwaves and that kind of thing. So um, they're probably looking at layering it. Now, uh, what I can see as a, a good combination would be a number of these, say, you know, defending or cross-checking one area. Um, do you think something like this would work quite well in a, you know, a, a um, an open air stadium or something like that, or do you think this would increase potentially the possibility of of the drone ending up falling on on someone inside that stadium? Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, that's something that they will obviously be dealing with as well. Um, if you were going to use it to defend something like an open air stadium, you would obviously need to establish uh, a perimeter of these systems. You're not going to be able to do it with just one. Uh, unless you're in a, a very small stadium, um, because if you're talking about these kinetic uh, measures, as you said, the primary risk factor is that the drone will fall and either hit somebody directly or, God forbid, if it's you know carrying some kind of a payload, uh, that that payload would then hit um, and you could, you could cause some damage there. This isn't something where you would necessarily sit it in the middle of a stadium um, because, as you said, if you if, once it comes inside the effective range, you shoot it down, it comes down inside the stadium. So you're talking about building a perimeter and trying to keep them from ever getting in. So um, in, in your world, uh, this is sort of the firewall, right? This is the perimeter security. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I guess that kind of segues into another article that you actually brought to my attention um, this week was the, the Virginia Tech research. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and how it affected, um, you know, 
particular studies they've tried to bring up before? Yeah, so there have been a few studies trying to look at this problem of, uh, okay, what is the serious risk of harm that drones pose if they do fall? And that's primarily been in the context of people wanting to fly drones over people. Um, so CNN has the first uh, license to be able to do that here in the U.S. Um, they have an exemption from Part 107 that allows them to do that for news gathering. But um, okay. in the in this particular context, we're talking more about you know bringing one down that that the pilot doesn't intend to bring down, and it poses the same problem. So there had been some studies um, in the in the UK recently, or, or one particular study that caught a lot of flack from almost everybody in the drone industry, from uh, the folks at, at some of the large drone manufacturers to um, even journalists um, in the area, where they they flew a very large drone with a very large battery um, into an aircraft cockpit, a simulated aircraft cockpit, and talked about the damage that that would cause, um, and then refused to release the data after they were called on to release the raw data um, by the community, and it was sort of a, a kerfuffle. The uh, study that happened at Virginia Tech, um, they, they don't directly say it was in response to that, but uh, it, it seems to potentially have been. So somehow, <laughs> somehow links it. So what they wanted to look at was, okay, what does it look like if a, in their case, 2.6-pound drone um, falls into somebody? What is the real risk of harm here? And uh, this looks more like a study that the FAA commissioned a while back um, where they went in and they tried to actually figure out which specific risks there were in terms of, okay, is it the prop slashing me in the face? Is it the... Uh, the, the whole thing, you know, coming down and hitting me on a certain part of my body, what what are the, the primary risks? And uh, this one um, sort of was a follow-up on that. And they determined, um, rather than looking at those specific subcomponents, they just tried to look at, okay, taking into account everything that could happen, what is the, the potential that we have a serious problem um, if a drone comes down and hits somebody? So, so you're talking likelihood of likelihood of um, death, yeah specifically they looked at um, catastrophic head injury just because that seemed like the thing that you could kind of okay. zero in on the easiest and um, they found that the risks of a catastrophic head injury assuming that you get hit by a drone that is falling and again that's uh, uh, 2.6 pounds um, were less than five percent so you know if you uh, are hopping on an airline and they say there's less wow. than a five percent chance that you're going to die on that flight that might not seem very good um, but when you're talking about uh, drones, they're not flying over people continuously in most of these scenarios. Um, and so the the idea of the study or the, or the takeaway from the study, I think, is that there isn't um, the risk of this kind of an injury happening isn't as high. Because clearly, if you if if you get hit by a car or if, you know, God forbid, if an airplane were to fly into you or something like that, obviously mm. the risk of harm would be much higher than five percent for a catastrophic head injury. So sure, um, sure. in comparison, they are much lower. However, 5% is still substantial. Yeah, and that, that 5% probably would increase if you were potentially using, you know, as we were mentioning, some of the kinetic um, countermeasures for drones, um, you know, based on, for example, an open-air stadium. And that's where, you know, some of those countermeasures that actually um, use ways to actually bring the drones down into a designated area um, are probably that that kind of backup system that you'll mm -hmm. want to have. So, I think um, you know the Skywall system as as great as turret mounted um, automatic 
um, net firing, you know, gun sound, um, they would need to account for that. You know, what do they do with that kinetic um, energy once it's been captured into a, a net and, and is falling exactly. to the ground? Um, I've, I've, you know, I've seen places where they've used um, everything from many, many parachutes to, um, you know, slow it down and that kind of thing. But it's it's one of those where it, it just involves more research. Um, you know, we have here in, in Australia, for example, we have ANCAP and they, they're constantly testing vehicles and, you know, the damage that um, the, you know, the test dummies would survive or, you know, what kind of impact they'd have when the car, you know, crashes. And it's one of those things where I certainly see there's room and, and space in that area for for testing these systems and ensuring, you know, what kind of damage they're going to do. And I guess studies like that at Virginia Tech um, are brilliant because we get to actually, um, you know, get a, a broader view That's of right. it all. And if, uh, if we want to do hot takes um, or predictions, which, you know, humans are universally bad at, um, my prediction um, <laughs> is actually that the future of kinetic systems will include some kind of a mix of systems like this as a as an absolute backstop, um, but that the primary kinetic systems uh, may very well turn out to be other drones. And if you look at the history of airborne warfare, um, you see that uh, countries figured out pretty quickly that they weren't going to be able to defend against aircraft using solely ground-based systems. Air superiority is still um, the term that you use to, to talk about whether, you know, who's winning in that theater. And it's primarily determined by who can put better planes in the sky. And uh, there are some companies out there, um, and I, I forget the name of um, the company that produces, for example, the Osprey, um, which is a, the Osprey is basically a very large uh, drone that has a net gun on it, um, and it will automatically... Um, identify the threat, fly over on top of it, shoot a net at it, and then carry it down to the ground, bound up in the net. Um, and so you, you may see um, some kind of a mix of a system like that with a system like Skywall, where that one goes out and tries to mitigate the threat in a way that doesn't cause much collateral damage. And then if that fails, you've got this Skywall as that backstop of, well, we understand there's a risk if we take it down with a sort of a dummy net um, or even with a parachute, but we've got to get it down. And um, that's that kind of defense in depth idea that you can uh, let people um, break those outer walls of your perimeter in a graceful way and in a way that doesn't destroy sort of your, your backstop at the end. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and uh, I'm sure, uh, I think it was U.S. General McMartha, um, MacArthur. He was uh, he was mentioning about you know the cross-dimensional um, warfare that they have these days. You know, involving you know both planes and and tanks and ground troops and and now drones and you know the the conversion of these different elements. Um, you know, electronic me- meeting with kinetic and and all that and. Um, you know, the way you summed that up with the the planes versus planes, we'll, we'll probably have some. Um, similar i guess events with drones um but then those backstops of you know electronic measures and and kinetic measures coming together as, as defense in depth interesting times um and you know uh, what what i've seen is is some of these companies especially defense companies coming to the point where they are trying to look into this because they are the previous i guess defenders of the defense world and one of those companies for example um is honeywell and you know we've been talking a little bit about this um and the you know honey honeywell what they've recently done um in the area but also you know with their i was chatting to you before about you know what they do with their 
integration systems, um, their security integration systems um, that are, you know, not only looking at doors and windows that might be, you know, um, breached in, a, in an area, but for example, detecting drones. Um, so there's a news report that said that Honeywell Aerospace and Intel, um, they partnered together to offer industrial drone inspection services. Now, this might be a little bit different to the security side of things, um, but obviously bringing Honeywell and the big players into this, um, what are your thoughts on that, Jacob? What do you think this means for for the industry? Yeah, I think that forward? this is sort of indicative of what you're going to see. And um, again, I'll name drop Colin Snow and Mike Blades. Uh, those are two of the best um, analysts. Um, for anybody who's listening to this podcast and wants to get a handle on what this industry is doing, um, go read Colin's report that they just put out over it. Um, it's at Drone Analyst on Twitter. Um, they have basically been saying consistently for a long time that one of the really underserved um, facets of the drone industry is information security. And um, drones are con- are evolving quickly in the commercial sector from a uh, what you call a stovepiped or a segmented um, ecosystem where you have you know, your pilot goes out and flies the drone and he gives the mapper the data and the mapper turns the data into a map. And then um, the mapper has to send it to some other provider to turn that map into an interface that the user can use. And then the user has to finally go to that interface and try to figure out how to use the data. Um, They're moving toward what's called um, a full stack system um, where you basically as a client go to the company and say, I want this data, you give me that data. And the one company does it from top to bottom. Um, that's that's sort of the trend. And so within that, um, those companies um, either are developing all of that entire stack in-house or they're going out and farming out different pieces of it and you know pulling it into a package and putting a bow around it. But um, in all of those interactions, your information security is uh, becomes more and more critical as more and more sensitive industries begin to adopt um, this into their workflow um, to try to take advantage of the cost savings that drones offer. So to me, the really interesting thing is that Intel didn't go out and try to do this on their own. Intel already had drones. Um, they're, uh, they've already been one of the very successful players in it mm. um, from the beginning. And so um, the fact that Intel went out and said, you know what, we really need somebody with security expertise to help us uh, manage this solution. Um, I, I haven't seen a lot of stuff from Intel saying this. This is me reading between the lines. But I think you're going to see these kinds of partnerships continue to pop up. I think you're going to see the people that have the really cool, you know, move fast and break stuff um, sort of technology chops recognize that, well, we actually could break some stuff here and it wouldn't be good. So uh, we need to have, you know, some people that have some of the security um, background involved. And uh, this is, I I think this company will do um, very well as long as it's nimble enough to, you know, stay in this, uh, in this industry because, the breadth of expertise, like you talked about, Honeywell is a, a major defense contractor. They're they're very familiar with sort of site security, um, and I think the fact that Honeywell's on board will help this particular venture get into some of those more sensitive um, locations and be able to take advantage of that client base that's nervous about letting anybody in. Um, however, that means they've they've got to do their job right. You got to have tight operation security, tight information security to make sure that you know the only copy of the data that they're generating is mm. going to the client and it's not going to a server farm in another country or something like that. Lockheed Martin um, recently you know doing some yep. work in the in the counter drone space um, which is also another defense um, competitor and you know some of the guys I think 
they're building ships and subs and and some of the jets themselves and you know even building say military drones for for the army um, and the the Australian Air Force and they're getting to the point where they're saying you know why can't we do this too um, we have years of experience in security um, and they have the technical expertise and they actually have the amount of people you know especially if they're building ships um, they can very quickly get to a point where they are able to have the capacity to build something en masse and you know being able to partner with people like Intel who have the, the computer background um, I think it's a it's a brilliant idea um, and they're going to you know Potentially, they could take this industry by storm in the security space, especially you know as these business-powered applications become more prevalent. I've personally seen PwC have a, um, a you know their own drone department. Some of the larger big four are certainly looking at it. Um, so it could get to that point where if they need stuff, I guess certified in assessments and and stuff with uh, stamps that mean a lot in terms of repro- approval. Um, some of these defense com- contractors could very much play a big Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And um, you're going to con- continue to see this convergence between things that we've traditionally thought of as commercial and things that we've traditionally thought of as defense sector. Um, because these things do, uh, you know, they challenge our concept of security in the civilian world because um, it, basically civilian uh, security has been a two-dimensional idea um, where military has been a three-dimensional for a long time. And uh, that's the thing that I think drones really do change is that now you have a capability for people to go to that third dimension, um, either, you know, for kicks um, or for ill. So uh, I I think we will continue to see it. Um, The other thing I I just wanted to say was the this matters more um, to some of our potential listeners, depending on what part of the world they live in, the information security side of it. So, for example, if you're. Uh, a company that's operating in Europe um, and you've got the uh, general data privacy regulation coming down, um, this is something that you should really be thinking about because um, just as you have an obligation to safeguard your users' data when it comes to you know their online data and getting cookie consent and all those kinds of things um, within your software agreements, any of the data that you're collecting with drones, um, you need to be checking that to make sure that you're protecting it in a way that's compliant with whatever the legal regime is that governs um, data security in your area. And um, I think that's part of why you're going to continue to see these partnerships, just to help people up those chops. But even if you're not um, interacting with the military, you need to start thinking about this um, almost in a military way or almost in a a security way um, that you may not have had to do before. Yeah, and this was something that we mentioned at the the World of Drones conference recently was that that um, customer data sitting on your drones um, and where it's being sent and where it's being you know in, inadvertently sent if you, if you don't realize um, is something to worry about with data sovereignty and those laws that relate to it. And um, I'm sure you know we're going to have a lot more <laughs> to discuss on this same topic, um, Jacob, in the next you know few weeks because um, it's one of those things that carries on you know quite a lot. Um, but, you know, we'll certainly cover that in, in more depth as we go Absolutely. Along. Okay, and looking at what else we have, there's a, a few, you know, in some of our, our DroneSec channels, um, Twitter, LinkedIn, emails, we get a lot of questions and queries um, a lot of the time. Um, but one of them was an email recently after, you know, we spoke at the World of Drones conference, and I just want to read out this letter. Um, I hadn't actually replied um, myself, but I wanted listeners the, to have the... I guess the ability to, to pitch in or chime in and, and give their opinion. Um, I'm not going to say his name when he contacted me, but the letter basically states, 
Um, last week, I was at you know the World of Drones conference um, in the the big data and cyber resilience area. Um, in relation to the growing drone industry, I'm ex-military. Um, his number of years post uh, Royal Australian Air Force, um, and now head of aerospace at an aviation high school. The areas of great interest to me as I become more involved with drones and their many applications. Um, and while I don't have programming or hacker skills with computers, um, I do wonder if there's a pathway for someone like myself to get into this industry. Um, I'm wondering if you would have any advice. And um, I'll certainly expand in a, in a private email, but this is something that came to me because I have, I've had a number of questions asked about you know the area of cyber resilience and big data in this area. Um, as you may have seen recently, a, a CDO was appointed, a, a chief drone officer. Um, and, you know, with that kind of position um, being given to a company, um, certainly more, you know, further position will become available with drones um, and heading up those areas. So drone security programs, especially for cities or, you know, cities utilizing IoT or looking to get into that area, um, they are certainly going to need their own drone security programs. Um, within that, you're going to need people that are, are looking at that data sovereignty, you know, governing that data. Um, protecting it from being hijacked, um, say the stream is hijacked midair, or potentially if the drone is stolen or drops out of the sky or hits something, you know, what are people going to find on that SD card? And, you know, there's everything from making sure your, your data at rest on your SD card or your USBs are encrypted. Um, you know, can anyone, does anyone have the ability to, to install malware to the point where your drone heads back to the, you know, the area and, and is able to do things there? Um, you want to have a, someone in charge that will be able to look over those drone security programs. And at the same time, there's also a big need at the moment for software defining those operating systems that the drones run on um, in order to secure them or at least provide you know, minimal protections um, against basic either hacking or you know, um, attempts to, to subvert that information based on there. Um, so I think there's areas for engineers. I think there's areas for um, developers to all come on board and be involved in drones using their parallel skill sets while not necessarily having to learn anything new, but I guess harnessing the, the power of, of drones. And as anyone, you know, myself as well, entering this area within, you know, the last few years, um, it's something where you realize it's a combination of, of information and technology, um, just getting a little bit better, but utilizing elements of stuff we already know. Um, so as long as you can lead in that area and, and I guess bring people together to create a, a secure drone program or at least you know, look at the way drones are talking to each other or the controllers, um, there's certainly areas there available for you. Um, you I mean, the, the letter talk was also already saying he was already teaching at a, a high school. Um, and there's the I Learn Drones program, which is currently in a number of schools um, teaching to kids. So even educational-wise, um, there's plenty of room there to move and to talk about not only laws and legislation, um, but I guess the safeguarding around how to actually operate one or how to fly one, um, which all does come into security in the end anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll certainly reply in a, in a greater detail privately, but there's, I think there's room and I think you'll see big four starting to hire in those certain um, positions as they try and get into business powered applications with drones, but they're trying to hold on to their, their security and, and not let it become a uh, too much of a PR disaster if something goes wrong with their shiny drone delivering something to a, a yeah, client um, or dealing with client just data. Two things. Um, first of all, to the, the gentleman who sent this um, email, 
if you're teaching the next generation of uh, people who are going to be dealing with these um, drones, or for that matter, um, Air Force pilots or, or um, whoever it is that you're training at aviation high school, you're doing more there than you could possibly do uh, in industry, right? I think it was uh, Bob Dylan that said, if I had to go back and do it all again, I'd be a kindergarten teacher. Um, so uh, you're, you're doing a lot um, where you're at, and um, thanks for doing that. Thanks for growing that next generation. Um, I would also say, specifically for somebody like you um, or like me, who does not have programming or hacker skills, as you put it, um, think about what you do have. Think about what you do have in terms of your experience that you can leverage in. Because as we've been talking about, especially on this whole episode, you this is becoming a sort of cross-compatibility problem. Drones are unique because they aren't airplanes and they aren't computers. They're somewhere in between. And the fact that you've got the Royal Air Force um, experience is is valuable because the military really is going to have to lead the civilian sector on this. The military has done operation security for hundreds of years. They've done information security. They've done signals intelligence. And the people who come out with that expertise um, are the same people that we need to help us harden uh, not only the drones themselves, but also the infrastructure um, to make sure that this doesn't become a huge problem. We need to take the lessons learned from all that military experience and apply it in the civilian world. So uh, don't be afraid to leverage that. Uh, Don't feel like just because you don't have those hacker skills that you can't play a role. You can play a huge role. And maybe it's by partnering with somebody who does. Very well said. Um, and then uh, another question we got um, just indirectly in, in one of the channels was um, how enforceable are counter drone laws? Um, if I need to protect my assets or a location, um, can I not just get hit by the $900 CASA fine for shooting down a drone on my remote property if it's that threat of damaging something worth a lot more? And just for, for listeners outside of Australia, CASA is our um, Australian governing body over, over drones and RPAS and UAV airspace, and that they make a lot of our laws. And I'm assuming by $900, um, that's referring to some of the recent fines handed out to you know people doing bad stuff with drones, but I'm not sure if we've actually had an instance where someone was fined for you know actually doing something to a drone, which in CASA law would probably look similar to interfering with a, an aircraft. Um, but how enforceable are they? Jacob, you'd probably have a, a much better idea of this one than me if you want well, to try and, think so. and answer um, this one for However, us. this is uh, a situation where <laughs> the enforceability is really uh, is really the question. So in terms of the laws on the books, there are um, legal bases for not just fines, but for criminal penalties for bringing down aircraft. Uh, most of the civil aviation authorities like um, CASA, like ESA, like the Federal Aviation Administration here in the U.S., um, have basically pulled drones under their jurisdiction by defining them as aircraft within uh, the authorizing legislation that's created those agencies. And um, that authority means that all the regulations that they've made that, for example, would prohibit you from shooting down an Airbus um, also prohibit you from shooting down drones. Um, They typically don't discriminate um, in terms of the counter um, threat laws or or your ability to do something um, to take action against one of those aircraft. That said, um, there have been quite a few um, instances, I think we're coming up on at least half a dozen or so in the U.S. that have been uh, reported, 
where people have you know just taken a 12 gauge to one of these things and they've um, shot them out of the sky and i am not aware um, that the faa has actually stepped in to enforce any of that criminal authority um, or here it would be the department of justice that that would step in to do it um, in any of those cases so it's sort of a situation where you have laws on the books but you don't have any serious enforcement of those laws and so the question is so what's the law um they in theory um, the answer to your question should be that they are enforceable however um, i think you're seeing these agencies take a look at it and say you know these things really are different than air and airbus um, and we really maybe should treat it differently and um, unfortunately uh, that may happen by selective enforcement at least in the beginning here um, I am a shameless plug. Um, my thesis for my LLM is on counter UAS systems and the various ways that they're illegal in the U.S. and trying to work toward a framework where um, in certain situations people would be able to use them um, in a manner that would be legal. So I'm sure we will be talking about that um, going forward on the podcast. Um, but for now, this is really an evaluation that you have to make. And um, if, you, if you're serious about making a legal judgment call in it, I would encourage you to talk to a lawyer, you know, in your local jurisdiction and have them take a look at it. Um, but the short answer is we, we really don't know at this point and we don't know um, how those laws are going to be enforced going forward. And we certainly look forward to hearing more about that um, that thesis that you're writing and, and how it potentially affects the rest of, you know, um, the, the industry going forward, you know, depending on how much, uh, I guess, play it has, you know, coming into the, the world of, of drone laws and applications and such. But, um, yeah, one of the things I was just going to add to that was it also depends on how they react to that drone. So if you're using something kinetic like a shotgun, um, you know, you might be firing a weapon in, in an area that might be, uh, you're not allowed to fire your, your gun for certain reasons. But if you're using a software-defined radio, um, for example, protocol manipulation, um, you're probably getting get stung by the, um, the communications governing body um, for, you know, going over a one watt or whatever it is um, in your area. Um, so it, it really depends on how you're countering that object as well um, and the method you use. It could end up harming other people or, you know, other other things around you. So I think it really depends on that. Um, but thank you so much for, for tuning in and listening today. That's unfortunately all we have time for today. Um, but in future, uh, we will be having this next week. Um, and we are looking at, at adding video and, and um, we look forward to sharing our, our list of, of um, guests lined up for this. Um, and thank you so much, Jacob, for, for chiming in and, and being part of DroneSec moving forward. We're really, really excited to have you on. Yeah, excited to be here. And uh, we look forward to hearing back uh, from you guys. Let us know um, your thoughts on the podcast. And if you've got ideas, send them over. Um, we're going to be doing this sort of as a news roundup. So um, we'll uh, constantly be looking for whatever the juiciest stories are for that week. Yeah, of course. And um, if you have any feedback uh, on the podcast, it is new. It, you know, we are in our, our second episode, um, but we really value your feedback. Um, we have a couple books or copies of Drones and Society uh, by Ron Barch. Excellent book. Um, I would really recommend it if you if you decide to go out there and buy it. But um, we're willing to give a few of these away to anyone who provides us with some some solid feedback for moving forward and, and suggestions. And of course, keep the the questions coming in and and that to our, our different channels. You can find us on everything from Reddit to LinkedIn to the main site um, dronesake.xyz. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful day or night or morning wherever you are based, and um, we'll catch you next week.